Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Welcome back to the Run the Numbers podcast. I am privileged to be here with Rich Gotham, the president of the Boston Celtics. Rich, thanks so much for coming on. Happy to do it, CJ. Thanks for for having me. Always great to reconnect with a uh, fellow citizen of Medfield. Exactly. I, I played the hometown card guys here to get this guy on the on the podcast. So you got to pull any lever you can. Good strategy. It's a, it's a foolproof strategy, really. To ask you up front, you've been with the Boston Celtics organization for quite some time now. What's changed the most in terms of how the Celtics do business today versus, say, 10 years ago? I'd say the fact that everything is largely digital today, you know, and, and it's not like digital technology wasn't around 10 years ago. It's been around, you know, for 20 years. But the fact that all of our ticketing is mobile now, so it's it's all paperless, it's kind of revolutionized the business to a degree. It allows you to understand who's actually using the ticket, who's coming into the building, which isn't always the case. You know who the season ticket members are and you know whose account the tickets are in. But in terms of building your your ability to market to a larger group of people, knowing who's actually in the seat every night has really been a big boon to the business and being able to see the audit trail on a ticket and how many times it changes hands and what's the value of it in the secondary market. All these things inform like so many decisions that we make about our business. And then, you know, digital content, you know, we're a small company, we got about 200 people, but we push content out all across the globe. You know, we had, I think, something like 1.2 or one point. 4 billion impressions with our digital content last year. And it's an amazing number, you know, given, you know, we're effectively a regional business, although the Celtics brand is global. The fact that we can create content here and push it out to Celtics fans all over the world has really expanded the field of opportunity, you know, for us and really provided us a way to engage with fans so much differently than we once did. Like we don't have to run advertising or there's a lot of demand for the Celtics team. It's been good for a while, but all of our engagement, all of our, what you'd call marketing is really content created and pushed out to fans. And that's how they engage with our brand. And so the ability to do that, you know, from our little offices here at, you know, above the TD garden has really been a game changer. What I find most fascinating about your business model, you know, you originally came from the tech world before you came over to work for the Boston Celtics organization is in tech, you can keep selling an infinite number of software licenses or, right. or you know, uh, CDs or whatever it may be. But for you, I mean, there are 82 games a year and I believe if I got the numbers right, it's 18,600 seats that you have in the arena. How does your mindset change just knowing that you have to optimize around some fixed assets there or or kind of fixed days in the calendar? First thing, since we did our renovation, we're now at like 19,100 oh, okay. seats, but 18,600 was the, uh, yeah, the number forever. Yeah, I, I think we're, we're an evergreen year-round business. So you could say sort of the epicenter of everything we do is the live game event, right? And everything's built around that. However, we market ourselves year-round. We promote our sponsored partnerships year-round. We've got television, media coverage year-round of what we do. We're pushing out content year-round. And we're out in the community year-round. And so there was once a time when you actually had an off-season in the NBA. That doesn't exist anymore. It used to be whenever you were done playing, you know, you'd get a breather, then you'd go into free agency in early July. 
but now we've got summer league, we have free agency, you've got draft workouts, you've got the draft has become a bigger and bigger event. You go to Vegas for two weeks of summer league, free agency extends into August, and suddenly every month of the calendar, and maybe a couple weeks in August, it tends to throttle down just a bit. But it's it's for sure a year-round business. And you know, as as a result of that, we're able to find ways to create value, generate revenue year-round, not just on game days. And what are the different ways that the Celtics make money? When when you sit down to review the business with your CFO or whoever else it may be, what are the different revenue line items you look at? The material line items and the ones that we really, you know, focus on are media rights ticket sales, and sponsorship, corporate partnership, we call it. You know, a lot of the variabilities in ticket sales from year to year, that's the most sensitive to team performance and demand and has the most volatility from year to year or can have the most volatility from year to year if you're not managing it properly. And those are the really the items that we spend a lot of our time on. Of course, we make money through merchandise and we make money through premium, although we don't own the garden. So a lot of the premium revenue goes through to the garden. By premium, I mean suites and club seats and things like that. But we participate in that. And there's a lot of licensing revenue that comes in through the NBA. The NBA has all the marketing rights of the 30 member teams outside of their marketing territories. So they do national sponsorships that cut across all markets. They do global sponsorships. They're selling product globally. They're doing media rights deals globally in different countries, different markets, that money all gets pooled. And then that money gets shared back one thirtieth to the teams. And that's become a, a significantly more material number as the media rights keep going up, particularly the national and global media rights. And one of the things that makes the NBA different than the other U.S. professional sports leagues is we're truly a global business. Basketball is played everywhere. Our games are in like 40-something languages in over 200 countries. People play it everywhere. Sort of, it's probably closer to soccer than it is to baseball, football, or hockey. Right. And if you think back to when you started with the Celtics to today, which revenue line item would you say has surprised you the most in, in a good way? What, what's outperformed that maybe wasn't even in the cards before? Well, to go back to your earlier point about sort of only kind of having a finite product, it is true. We only have 41 home games plus a couple preseason and whatever we play at home in the playoffs. There's only 19,150 seats. That doesn't change. There's only so many ad spots during the duration of a game or the game television broadcast. So your, your opportunity in that regard is somewhat bound. You can't create, you know, it's not as many downloads sure. as keystrokes, right? So- The fact that we've been able to grow our ticket revenue so significantly year over year over year and be able to sustain that growth is somewhat surprising because when I got into this business, I sort of looked at it and said, okay, this is a nice business. This can be a profitable business, but there's kind of a ceiling on it. But as the NBA's popularity has grown, as the Celtics' popularity has grown, as we've had success, we've been able to find ways to continue to grow that revenue line to levels that I never would have imagined. And we pretty much break our revenue record every year in ticket sales. And then then the other thing is, and the real question in the industry right now is how high is high for national broadcast and media rights? Mm-hmm. And you know, if you do a deal seven or eight years ago that is two and a half X the previous one, are you able to do that again? Right. You know, <laughs> you know and and the fact is that, you know, so far we we have been able to do that as a league based on the value of sports media rights and live sports content in a world where 
people are watching streaming, you know, and live isn't really a thing. It's the last bastion of, I guess what I call sort of the old television paradigm, you know, is that live event that you need to see at the time. And it's just continued to generate value. And when you look at the major broadcast companies, you know, it's sports and it's news that's sort of driving the bus for them. So anyway, no matter how much things have sort of changed with regard to how consumers are consuming media these days, the value of our rights continues to rise. And even though there's been disruption sort of in the distribution channels, it hasn't affected the value of the content. And it's funny because you're not a publicly traded company. We don't know how much revenue you're making, but every day we can tell what your record is. So how does the team's performance impact revenue growth and, and performance? It usually impacts it more in the subsequent season than the one you're in. You know, if you're doing your job well, you've optimized your opportunity going into a season. And there's some upside if the team does well, particularly if the team gets to the conference finals or the finals, then there's generally some upside that maybe you haven't budgeted for. But I, I think the key for our business is to year in, year out, have a competitive team. Mm. And that doesn't mean you're going to win it every year. And in the years when you may have to take a step backwards to reset, being transparent with our fans so that they understand what we're doing and why, and they can see the plan that hopefully gets us back to where we want to go. And that helps you to sustain so that you don't bottom out. But ultimately, a good season, it's tailwinds. You know, A bad season, it's headwinds. And you're fighting it not just with ticket sales and the price that you can actually get for your tickets, but also sponsors and partners, they want to associate with winners. Now, most of those deals are longer term deals and they can get through whatever valleys you might have in terms of team performance. And those partnerships are generally built on partnership more so than how good is the team going to be this year. Yeah. But the fact is that sponsors want to associate with winning brands. And so it helps to win. So that's kind of where it all starts. And that's where our business starts. Making money and running a good business is only important to the extent it allows us to invest back in the team. And if we invest in the team, we're investing in our product. And if we're investing in our product, our product's going to improve, we're going to get better, and that's going to drive our economics, just like any, any other product would be if you're in tech, right? When the going gets tough, you don't pull back from R&D, you double down on R&D. You don't pull back from marketing, you do more marketing, right? I mean, if you're, if you're able to, I guess. You know, and that's sort of the mentality that we've had, which is you need to invest to grow. And so being successful from a business standpoint allows us to continually invest in the team, have a high player payroll, which for better or for worse, definitely correlates with success on the court. Right. And one of the big partnerships that you committed to long term was putting a logo on the jersey over yeah. the last year. That, that was an exciting movement. Yeah, that's uh, that was a big move. The NBA was the first of the, you know, the major four professional sports leagues in the U.S. to do that. Soccer teams, you know, in Europe have been doing it for years. Yeah. Other than NASCAR uh, and soccer. <laughs> right. Yeah. NASCAR. I hadn't considered yet. Yeah, NASCAR, it's pretty much endemic to NASCAR. You know, it's sort of like sponsors are the reason for NASCAR. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, the cart uh, leading the horse. Or at least as you know, if you watch Talladega Nights, that's what you believe. Right. right? Yeah, the jersey patch was a big step for us. It was a decision that had to get approved by the 30 teams that we were willing to do it. it. Took us a couple cracks at it before we could get all the teams on board to do it. I was involved early on in the project at the league level, representing the teams to drive it forward. And, you know, it's been a huge boon to the business. It's, you know, created 
a few hundred million more in revenue across the league that wouldn't otherwise be there. And for teams like the Celtics, we don't own the TD Garden. So that jersey patch is sort of the equivalent of our building naming rights, right? That's the closest association we have with a partner. And the value that is ascribed to it by the partners is on par with what someone would pay for naming rights to an arena. And a big part of that is because it's seen everywhere in the world, as I mentioned, with our global distribution and the availability of NBA games everywhere. And then on top of that, if you're a successful team and you're able to have success in the playoffs and make it through to the conference finals and the finals, the media impressions, the value goes up exponentially. So it's a really valuable asset. And it, you know, if you're a team like the Celtics, you tend not to mess with tradition, right? So it's a little hard to say, we're going to do something, we're going to put someone on our uniform. That was a big hurdle to get over, but the business benefit is clear. And again, the business benefit helps us put a better team on the court and that's what our fans want. And that's who we're in business for. I like how you took a first principles perspective to that, that it would allow you to put a better product on the floor by doing so. So that, that definitely resonates. Yeah. That's what always fuels us. You know, when you work for the Celtics, you know, you've got 17 banners, right. And you've got all these great people who came before you. I remember talking to Red Auerbach when I first joined and, you know, there were a few things that I thought might be sacred cows that maybe Red wouldn't want to do because he's Red Auerbach, you know, the, mm. the guardian of the Celtics and the tradition of the Celtics. And I said to Red, he's like, oh, can you get it sponsored? Can you make money? He'd be like, he'd be like oh, go ahead and do it. That's great. And I think, you know, as much as we are tradition, our tradition is what makes our brand unique from a business standpoint. Innovation is what drives you forward. And it's an, also an important part of the Celtics as we exist, you know, today in 2023. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Just to go back to a prior question, sometimes I, I can't unthink these things just from a budgeting perspective, but you talked about the importance of making the playoffs. I bet there are a lot of budgeting nerds out there like me who are thinking, is that all upside to your revenue model? When you make the playoffs, is that all incremental concessions, beer sales? How does that work? So we budget like most businesses, right? So we'll take a look and we'll say, okay, based on our assessment of how good we think our team is, are we budgeting for playoffs or for no playoffs? Are we budgeting for first round? Are we budgeting for two rounds? We never really budget for more than two rounds because you're, mm. you're kind of kidding yourself if you think no matter how good you are, You'll have all the good fortune you need to get through to the conference finals and then the finals. So our budget and our spending is based off of our projections. So it's not all upside. However, you know, in a a given year, it's sort of how do you describe upside? Because when you're paying luxury tax at the level we're paying it now, you're not going to break into profitability. It's not going to happen. It's how much of a debt can you make in that luxury tax payment you're making but getting through to, you know, it's interesting in 07, 08, when we made the finals, we lost money that year. Really? We significantly increased our player payroll. And we had big player bonuses due to a few of the guys who had them in their contract for making the finals. And so we ended up losing money that year. And that was perfectly fine, by the way, right? I mean, our mission isn't to make a profit. Our mission is to raise banners, right? That's the name of our company. You know, everyone to the outside world is the Boston Celtics, but our actual corporate name is Banner 17. Because when we all got here, we'd only won 16 and we wanted to be very clear. Our mission is to hang another banner. And so, you know, you plan for success. But if you're lucky, say like we were two years ago and you get to the finals against a team like Golden State in an affluent market 
like the Bay Area, ticket prices are astronomical. Demand is astronomical. You've got box office players like Steph Curry driving demand. The only thing that's really bigger is like Celtics Lakers. And so in that case, yeah, there's some upside that, you know, you haven't budgeted for because you can't budget for, oh, I think we're going to play the Golden State Warriors or the Los Angeles Lakers in the finals this year. And therefore, I'm going to get way out over my skis on spending based on an assumption that I've got no control over, no matter how good a team we put on the floor. That's an interesting variable for the model, too. It's not only do you make the playoffs, but what market and what team are you up against that impacts the potential revenue opportunity? Yeah, that's game to game, right? We've got so much demand right now that it's there's less variance between what we consider, say, a B-level game or an A-plus game. But yeah, you know, depending upon who's coming to town, we variably price all of our games based on you know demand for a particular opponent. Sometimes it's based on how good that opponent is. Sometimes it's based on the players they have, right? Whatever right. team LeBron's on. Now that he's on the Lakers, it's even bigger, right? Steph Curry, obviously, Kevin Durant, Victor Wembanyama, right? You've got some players who drive box office, and that's great for the league, and it's great for the team economics. And when the Celtics go on the road, you know, we are the largest, I think we're now the second largest, or maybe third largest team in terms of gate that we drive for other teams. If my research is correct, the Celtics organization was one of the first to experiment with dynamic pricing. And now I had heard in an interview, you said dynamic pricing is like breathing to us. Can you talk just about the mindset about how you set ticket prices and, and when you release them to the market? Yeah. Well, if you go back to you know the topic of it's, it's a finite asset, right? So if you want to maximize your yields, you've really got to understand demand. And when I first got here, that didn't exist, that notion. Now, in the business I was in, in the search engine advertising business, it was yield management. It was like, you know, time of day, how many impressions, what channel, where's the demand, what key search words, all the things that I just talked about with regard to quality of opponent, but you could add in day of week, you could add in time of year, you can add in, uh, is it a school vacation week? Wow. You know, it's always like, who's the right customer for the right seat on the right night of the week against the right opponent? Is it a business? Is it an individual? And how do we maximize revenue? And if that means we have an opportunity to price every individual seat differently, we don't, but we would do that, right? So we're pretty surgical about how we price, you know, based on that sort of understanding of demand. And that understanding of demand these days is largely driven by the secondary market. And as I mentioned, the fact that our tickets are digital now, we can follow a ticket to its life cycle. We can see if someone is reselling our ticket, whether that's a season ticket member who's reselling their ticket or whether it's ACE tickets here in Boston, we know what price they're getting, which feeds our demand okay. you know, algorithm, which allows us in real time, even on a day of a game, to continue to price up and down based on demand for whatever tickets we've kind of held back for day of game sales. So it's a pretty sophisticated operation and every team in sports does it now. But yeah, 20 years ago, Really, the only other team that, that we saw that was doing what we were was the San Francisco Giants. And, you know, not, not surprisingly, they're out there, you know, in Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, right, where there's sort of a, an innovative mindset. Yeah, so it's, it's a big part of every sports team's business these days. It's uh, no secret that Taylor Swift hates Ticketmaster and the stub hubs of the world. How do you grapple with that secondary market? Because if, if I understand how it works, you don't get all of the upside of when a ticket goes up, but it sounds like you, you do get valuable data from it at least. Yeah, I think the data is really important, knowing who the buyers are, 
knowing what price they're paying is, is really important to us, getting an email address into our database. But we have a partnership, you know, like Ticketmaster, they're our business partners. And so most of our secondary business goes through Ticketmaster ultimately. Even if Ace Tickets is reselling it, it gets transacted through Ticketmaster and we get, you know, a share of the transaction, not necessarily the face price, but the transaction value. So there's some ancillary revenues when tickets are sold through that Ticketmaster partnership. But yeah, I think the real value is in the data. And, you know, we're like most businesses, right? You really, the more you know about your customer, the better. And I think in a lot of businesses, terrestrial businesses, you know, people are having to go out and survey customers. What do you think about our product? You know, we know what people think about it. We know how price goes up and down. If we send out a survey, I'm not sure what the latest numbers are. When I first got here, we'd send out a survey to fans and it'd get a 60% response rate, which is That's nuts. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And if you gave them room to write something in addition to answering your questions, they'd give you two pages, you know, because everyone's got an opinion and, and strong emotion and passion about your product. And, you know, all you need to do is go to Blue Moon Bagel in, uh, in Medfield, right? And, you know, someone's talking about, you know, the Celtics, the Patriots, the Bruins, the Red Sox, you name it, right? So you're, you know, you, you got all this firsthand data, like right in your face that allows you to make marketing decisions, product decisions, pricing decisions. The more I think about it, you're a data business at your core. Well, yeah, it's interesting because when I joined the Celtics, and I first looked at it, I was like, okay, well, you know, it's, it's the Celtics. It's such a unique opportunity. And I love basketball and I love the Celtics. Hard for me to sort of say no to this, but I'm sort of growth driven. Like that's what kind of fires me up every day. Like how do we go from here to here to here? And when I looked at it closely, what sort of dawned on me was it was a data business that didn't really have the data underlying it. And it was a digital technology business that the technology just hadn't caught up with it yet. And it was a business at the intersection of sports, media, and pop culture, because the NBA is a huge influence on pop culture. Yeah. And when I looked at all that, I'm like, okay, well, this could be, you know, something more than just, oh, it's just the Celtics and, you know, the ball goes up and that's kind of, they play the game and that's it. You know, fortunately for me, luckily, we've got a lot of really good, smart people here who've helped drive this forward in so many different ways. And particularly on the data side, you know, we've got a whole group of on the basketball side, we call them the BIA, you know, the Basketball Intelligence Agency, and their motto is in red, we trust. And we've got a um, business intelligence group here on the business side that's, you know, around the clock on not just pricing tickets, but the data associated with retaining our customers, right? And understanding what customers, you know, season ticket members, you're at high risk of not coming back based on any number of factors or what customers are at no risk of leaving. And therefore you spend your marketing powder against, you know, the people who are at higher risk of not coming back and you spend less time, you know, worrying about the people who are going to be with you for a long period of time. So it's, it's all data that, that drives that. Can you think of any data point you saw within the last year that, you know, produced a mindset shift and you made a major change in the business? I don't know about the last year, but I'll, I'll tell you the epiphany that I had, which, you know, as a Boston sports fan, you might say, wait a minute, that doesn't, that doesn't sound right. When we surveyed fans when I first got here, you know, trying to understand a little better how they felt about the fan experience coming to a Celtics game and what were the most important factors that influenced, you know, that experience. And of course, I would have always thought whether the team won or lost. That was like seventh out of 10. 
No way. In terms of importance to the fan. And there are all these other things. And so it helped me to understand, okay, that game night experience that you create is as important in terms of their satisfaction with coming to a game as winning is. Now, that may not hold up if you're losing for five years in a row or 10 years in a row, whatever, you know, you know, losing may become an anchor on the business, but that was eye-opening to me. And as a result of that, you know, we spent a lot more time thinking about how do we really improve that, what we call sort of the driveway to driveway experience, right? From the time you leave your house, get to the garden, get in, get out, get back home. Like, how do we make that easier and better for people? Like, the game entertainment really means a lot to the fans. You know, that's an important part of what they're coming for because win or lose, you know, we want people to leave the garden saying, I had a blast tonight, right? And that can be true, by the way. You can be disappointed with the result, but you could also get home and say, wow, that was awesome. I had a great time. Yeah, those two things can be true. Rich, the more I hear you talk about it, it sounds like you're almost running a membership model. It is a membership model. You know, people used to call them season ticket holders. We call them season ticket members. We've got a whole group of people called our member experience group that their job is to meet all the needs and provide all the service they need to to our season ticket members to ensure that they have a great experience and that they want to renew their tickets. And it's a huge part of our business. It's a very data-driven part, as I had mentioned. And we have, for every single one of our season ticket members, we have a risk profile and a score associated with them based on all the observed behaviors and firsthand behaviors. And we have a touchpoint program that says we've got to get out and we've got to have all these different face-to-face and digital touchpoints with our fans, events, in-person meetings. If it's season ticket members, kid's birthday will show up at a seat with a jersey of their favorite player. And it's all, you know, again, this all kind of goes back to building this database and really knowing who your fans are and then servicing them and providing, you know, a real experience that goes beyond just the actual, you know, I got a ticket and I'm going to the game. It sounds like retention rate or renewal rate must be one of the North Star metrics your organization optimizes for. Yeah, it's kind of where everything starts, where your planning starts every year. So We begin renewal planning in usually January. We start renewing tickets usually in February, you know, while the season's still going on. So I'm talking about renewing tickets for the next season before anyone knows the ending to the story, right? Because you don't know if we we won the championship or we got knocked out in the first round or didn't make the playoffs at all. Is that timing on purpose? Yeah, for sure. Because you want to know if you're going to end up with empty seats, you want plenty of time to refill those seats. We've got like an 11,000 person paid waiting list So we've got plenty of demand to fulfill, but you want to know that. But you also want the time to really understand what your fans are telling you so that you can respond to it. And so every year we'll come out with a different set of benefits for our season ticket members that are more tailored to what we're hearing from them, more tailored to what they really value. And there's a lot of things. It could be anything from, oh, I I get to golf in a tournament or or I just get a golf shirt as a gift, you know, or... I get to go to a open practice at the practice facility or, you know, I get a business networking night event that I get to go to. And there's all these sort of different benefits that we roll out for different types of season ticket members. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Does your team try to calculate the estimated lifetime value of a fan? You know, it's not something that like is on my dashboard that we're sort of staring at. It's also theoretical, I guess, in a lot of ways. I think there's a intuitive knowledge, right? Because we start, we have the thing called Junior Celtics Academy, right? That's our youth basketball initiatives. And we're really investing in that right now. 
And it really is all about the lifetime value of a fan, right? You know, if we teach kids how to play basketball the right way, engender a love of basketball, you know, and they're wearing the Celtics brand when they're playing and they're coming up, you know, they're more likely to be fans. And if you get them as fans, you know how Boston fans are. Once it's in your blood, yeah. you know, I mean, you're born into it for the most part, but, uh, you know, they're lifetime fans. And so it's hard to equate that because you can have lifetime fans who are, they move out to the to the West Coast, right? Now they're they're buying NBA League Pass so they can watch Celtics games, right? And so there's some value to us in that. But it's, it's hard to equate, but ultimately... Yeah, we're always sort of saying, you know, the idea is to retain our fans. Like that's probably where it all starts every year is like we need to retain our season ticket members. And if you can renew, let's say, you know, we've been renewing our season ticket members at 95% plus for the last few years, that creates a scarcity of inventory of tickets and scarcity drives demand, which drives pricing, which drives revenue growth. So, you know, it all starts with filling as many of those seats and keeping those season ticket members feeling good about their their investment. I love that flywheel you just described. I wanted to call that out, that when you have a high renewal and retention rate, which by the way, software companies out there would absolutely kill for 95%. Mm. It makes it with a scarce asset, drive further demand and, and it helps you in the long term. So it all does start at that renewal rate. Rich, you were also describing the different things that customers will buy and the different SKUs that are out there. When someone goes to the game, what are the highest margin items you hope they buy? Is it is it alcohol? Is it food? Is it shirts, merchandise? Tickets, but no, that's uh they're already there. So yeah. uh, you know, we don't think about it that way. We don't run the concessions at the garden. The TD Garden is owned by Delaware North Corporation. They're a huge concessionaire. They've got a business called Sports Service that provides all the concession business. You know, the highest margin stuff is generally up in the suites, right? Because there's right. a lot less sensitivity to price, but that's not something we're looking at, but what we probably care the most about in terms of where fans are spending their money, we want to see fans wearing Celtics jerseys. Wearing right? green. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I mean, you're, if wearing, you're green. wearing our brand, there's a connection there. You know, you're declaring not just to yourself, but to everyone, like I'm a Celtics fan. And so I think that's where, you know, we're a lot more focused on that part of our business, the merchandise part of our business. Right. And most of that these days is is online versus in arena, but yet in arena is also a really important part of it because so many people come in for the first time have to get that jersey. My brother-in-law, who's definitely listening right now, is a massive Celtics fan. So he's going to be happy about this podcast, but bummed out because he wanted to know how the beer prices were set. Yeah, well, I think uh, it's also demand-driven pricing. So, <laughs> so, so that gives simple you economics, Jake. Input. There you have yeah. it. Simple economics. Rich, earlier you'd mentioned the San Francisco Giants. That jumped out to me because that's not an NBA team. That that's a baseball team. Are there other teams in or outside of the NBA that you try to emulate in how they run their business? You kind of cherry pick from organization to organization, so it's not always just one organization. The good thing about pro sports, you know, within the NBA and then outside of the NBA across leagues, you know, we compete on the court. And you could argue, I guess, that we compete for fan mindshare within our markets, but we cooperate and exchange best practices all the time. The NBA has a group called Team Marketing and Business Operations that socializes best practices across all 30 member teams. And we're sharing, I'm about to go down to Miami for, you know, NBA league sales and marketing meetings. And that's what it's all about is sharing best practices across the teams and trying to make everyone better and smarter to create a bigger 
revenue pie that allows us to pay players more and allows us all to have more successful businesses. And then when you look across other organizations, every team is different and every league is different. And there's so many different business models. Even if you just look around Boston, like we're probably the one team that's not really in the real estate business here. The Red Sox are, the Patriots are, the Bruins are, you know, so we look at things differently, but we're, we're constantly looking at other teams. You know, the Golden State Warriors within our league are a very progressive organization, not surprisingly. You know, when we look at other sports teams, we look at the English Premier League a lot, not necessarily because of innovation as much as they're a global league, just like the NBA sure. is. And they're played everywhere. And so you can look at where they're seeing growth and finding growth and how they're trying to tap into it and look at what they're doing. And so we spend time on that. And there's always an exchange. And it's not just the business side. It's on the sports side as well. We just had like 35 or 40 people from the German national soccer program. And the German national soccer program is also integrated with the Bundesliga. So all the general managers came here for an information exchange with the Celtics, with the Patriots. And a lot of that was sharing best practices around player performance optimization and how you really support your players and all the things you do to try to put them in the best position to have success. So it's a really cool part because when I was in tech, of course you didn't do that, right? Your yeah. competitor was your sworn enemy. You were keeping secrets from them. They're keeping secrets from you, right? They don't want you to know what's in the next release. You don't want them to know, you know what you're coming out with and when. But in sports, it's really a great culture you're able to share with all your people who would otherwise presumably be your competitors. It's funny when I think about it, because I'm also a big Patriots fan, but there's only so many hours in the day. Now, this year, you, you won't overlap much with the Patriots because they won't be in the playoffs, sadly. But you are competing for people's time, regardless if it's basketball or another sport. Yeah. You know, we're lucky in Boston in that people aren't choosing one sport or another. Which no, happens in some Yeah. You know, and I think if you're putting a good product out, you don't really have to worry about the other teams. I've never, I, I don't spend a minute worrying about Patriots or the Red Sox or the Bruins, you know, in terms of taking fans away from us. We've got huge cross-section of fans with the Red Sox, with the Patriots, somewhat less so with the Bruins, but that's probably a good thing because we're both winter sports, right? So a hockey fan is not the same necessarily as a basketball fan, although there are plenty of people who are fans of both. So most people have sort of the one team that they really care. You know, for me, it was always the Celtics, but that's because I grew up when, you know, Larry Bird was playing here. Right. But for a generation of people it would be the Tom Brady Patriots, you know, and then yeah. but prior to that, when I was really young, it was a Bobby Orr and the Bruins, you know, and the Bruins were the hottest team in town. But the good thing about Boston is, for, you know, one, the fandom is, well, it's, it's fanatical, right? And it's, there's more than enough to go around for all the teams if you're putting a good product out there. You know, and two, it's not a huge market. It's like the number 10 or 12 or 13 size market. But, you know, it's an affluent market. There's enough of an economy here that can support financially four teams as well. Sure. This is a lot of fun. So uh, what we're going to do is move into what I like to call our long ass lightning round. So first question I got for you, what's one piece of advice you'd give to the president of a newer franchise or a recently relocated franchise to generate market value? Commit to the community. Make sure the fans understand that you're committed to the community that you're asking to support your team. And that's a big part of what our ownership did when they bought the Celtics. I said it's about two things, about raising banners and giving back to the community. And I think that's really important because you need to build goodwill that sustains you inevitably when you have a down year or two. 
And, you know, usually when you come in, it takes a while to get where you want to go, right? So you need to build that goodwill in order for people to hang with you and say, I like these people. I like what they're doing. They're good corporate citizens. They give back. They're helping people in the community. They're making our city a better place. I think that's important. And the Celtics players really do walk the walk. I remember growing up, I was a big Rajon Rondo fan. And some people thought that, you know, he could be a head case sometimes. But people didn't know that he was one of the most giving players off the courts, whether it be buying kids presents at Christmas or doing turkey drives or, or visiting people in hospitals. So, I mean, the, the Celtics players have been a staple in the community. Yeah, and that's part of being a Celtic player. You know, that's really important. And some of them have a lot of their own initiatives going on. Drew Holiday's a really good example. Jalen Brown's a good example of that. But we consider that to be a big part of what it means to be a, a player for the Celtics. You know, it's part of the reason everyone was, you know, so sad when Marcus Smart left. Like Marcus, yeah. you know, could be polarizing on the court, but off the court, he was the biggest hearted guy, you know, and would do anything for kids or families in need built out his home foundation to do exactly that. But he would be the guy, if there was a sick kid in children's hospital, he'd be like, FaceTime that kid for me and give me the phone, you know, real time, you know, so he, you know, so there's special players, but yeah, we'd like to think it's part of what it means to be, you know, a Celtic. I love that. What's one piece of career advice for someone who wants to work within professional sports organization? And maybe another way to phrase it is how did you find your product market fit to succeed with the Celtics? Yeah, my story isn't probably too helpful to too many people because I got invited to join the team by the ownership group that bought the team without having to kind of work my way up in sports. I came up through through tech. I think patience and perseverance is really what's important. You know, the sports industry, while it's evolved a lot, it's not finance, it's not tech. You know, companies aren't sports organizations, sports leagues, sports teams aren't hiring hundreds of people or thousands of people a year. And so there's not a lot of job availability and you've really got to work hard to find the jobs. And then we've got a job opening now that we've got 1,800 resumes for. (laughs) You know, and it's like, okay, it's an entry-level job. So you've really got to find your way to vector in and there's no one way to do that. You need to network. And then, you know, you need to be patient because it takes time. So if you really want to be in sports, you sort of have to understand it's not like other industries where you might say, okay, I'm coming out of college and I want to get into tech sales and I'll interview with seven or eight companies. And if I'm lucky, I'll get a couple offers. It's not how it is in sports. So in sports, you've really got to, you got to really network and you've got to have the patience to stick with it and the perseverance to stick with it because it's not always going to happen quickly. It's funny. I was making a coffee to get hyped up for this call. And I was explaining to my wife that I was interviewing you. And she said, that sounds like the coolest job. Wouldn't you love to do that? And I said, of course I would. But there are only 30 teams out there. There are thousands of tech companies who need a CFO. So that is a differing factor in what you're doing. Yeah, it's it's true. And it's not like the skills aren't translatable. They are. Like our CFO came from ENY, right? And, you know, he's been here longer than I have, but the hard part is finding, again, how do you vector in? And for me, I was just lucky. I had been associated with a company that was really successful. The venture company that had funded that company was aware of me at some level. And turns out the guy who bought the Celtics was a partner at that VC firm and said, okay, I've heard enough about this guy. I'm going to call him and see if he's interested. You know, and it's not usually the way it goes. You're increasing your surface area for good things to happen. Well, that's, you know, that's the goal in life, right? I mean, I think that's my advice to anyone. You never know, right, what's going to come your way. So whatever you're doing, do it really well. 
build good relationships with people, you know, not to sound cliche, yeah. but be a team player, be someone that other people will say good things about. And if you do that, you know, your, yeah, your opportunities will you know, be more plentiful. So you've crushed it, but I always ask people, what's one thing you've screwed up in your career? Can you give us an example? That's one thing I haven't screwed up is a better question. Yeah, you know, I think, I don't know if I could sort of say, oh, here's one thing that I really screwed up. I think early in my career, I was not as serious about my career as I should be. Like I had success, but I think it's just part of being young. I didn't pour as much into it in order to take as much out of it as I could. Okay. And so I, I think I sort of tell young people like, People who you work with who have a lot of experience would love to share it with you if you want to ask them. Everyone wants to help people on the way up. And, you know, I didn't ask people. You know, I was always like, put it on my own back. I don't need anyone's help. I'm, you know, sort of, I, I can figure this out. I can do it on my own. And so, I, you know, I wished that I had taken more advantage of that on the way up. And then I think the other thing you learn, everything comes around and goes around. And it's so interesting to me, negotiating partnerships in sports is so different than in tech. Mm. In tech, I was a deal guy, so I did a lot of deals. And it was almost like the person on the other side who was going to become our business partner was our adversary. The negotiations were brutal. And the lawyers were killing you. And by the end of it, you're like, I don't like them and they don't like me. (laughs) And that's not really where you want to land. You know, in sports, our partnerships, they're just that. They're partnerships. And everyone has that expectation going in. And it's such a nice way to do business without burning bridges, you know? And I think if I were to go back and look at my younger self and the way I was doing deals back then, which was simply to maximize the size of the deal to drive our share price, you know, that's sort of, you know, the penny wise, dollar foolish way of looking at things. And what I had read is one of the reasons why you partnered with GE on this innovative patch deal was because they had a big analytics component to their firm that could help you there too. So it is a fully encompassing way to work together. It's not just about the money. Yeah, you're looking for all those synergies. And particularly in a partnership like that one, we together, along with GE, built a mobile STEM lab that we took to inner city schools in Boston, up in Lawrence, and in school systems where they don't have access to that kind of curriculum. We had like 3D printers. We had like all sorts of like really, you know, engaging stuff. And we could never do that on our own. GE they could build a mobile STEM lab, but they don't have access to the school systems like we do because we're we're in those school systems all the time. Yeah. So yeah, you try to find partnerships that are truly partnerships. And the one thing that differentiates what we do from other walks of life is virtually every partnership we have or every material partnership we have has a community give back component. And it's a really important part of what holds these deals together. It's not where the money gets allocated, right? It's not where the profit is in the deal. But oftentimes it's the reason for the deal and it's what brings you together with another company and you find those shared values and that creates a whole different kind of partnership. And even when we end partnerships, for whatever reason, they, you know, budget reasons on the other side or we see a different opportunity, whatever it might be, we walk away and people are like, they feel great about the partnership. And a lot of it is because they get an opportunity to, to do something good and give back as a part of the partnership, which most people don't really get to do in the business world. That's powerful. Rich, last question for you, then I'll let you go. What really went down with Paul Pierce in game one of the 2008 finals? What, what, what happened in that locker room when he went back? Well, he did not have a stomach emergency. Uh, I'll, I'll choose those words versus something more crass. I can tell you because I was firsthand. So 
he went down and obviously we all saw the finals like flash before our eyes. Like, oh no, how can this be happening? I left my seat very quickly, ran back into the trainer's room. They had wheeled Paul back there in a wheelchair. And, you know, if you're around enough basketball, your first thought is, oh, it's an ACL. It's got to be an ACL. The good thing about an ACL is it's an easy test. The trainer, you know, the team doctor can figure out very quickly, you know, based on just manipulating your knee a little bit. And and it wasn't. So they got Paul stand up, put some weight on it. How do you feel? Jump up and down, sit up and down. How you doing? And Paul's like, give me a brace. I'm going back. And that's what happened. Like they thought, he thought in that moment, it was something worse. It turned out like he was like, he let God, he's like jumping. I'm sorry, I'm jumping now. But he's like jumping up and down, testing it. And they said, okay, you're good. So interesting, it was not a stomach emergency, which is kind of funny. I feel bad for Paul because he's always got to answer that. Someone came up with that. It was probably one of his teammates, you know? It was probably yeah. KG or Perk who, who <laughs> floated that rumor out there to, to needle him. Rich, I got to thank you for doing this, and I hope we can celebrate at the end of the season with Banner 18. Appreciate it, CJ. Thanks for having me on, and uh, congrats on all your success, and good luck going forward, man. Thanks. Roll the credits, producer Natalie. Run the Numbers is part of the Turpentine Podcast Network. It is produced by Natalie Torrin and edited by Justin Golden. Album artwork by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. If you made it this far, please give us five stars. I really need this.